It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. We need urgent response. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't waste things. Think this world is precious. Think your time is precious. I think I know more about the environment than most people. All you can talk about is the money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Hello and welcome to Hot In Here. I'm Jackson. And I'm James. And this is our podcast where we talk about climate change. And today, Jackson, you're speaking with Susan Joy Hassel about innovation. Yeah, this episode is all about climate change solutions. We've already touched on some with other guests, but I believe it's important to devote an entire episode to learn about the innovation taking place to stop global warming. I like the word innovation when talking about climate change. It's a comfy word. Innovation sounds like the world is actually doing something. Exactly. There are people around the world doing great work, creating solutions. And as Dr. Carl told us, many of the tools already exist. We can solve climate change with today's technology. It's sad to think that we've actually invented the tools, but as a society, we're too dumb to use them. Yeah, not necessarily too dumb. There's just not the political will to embrace them and really use them at scale. That makes me think what would the world look like if we started using more tools? What is this technology we already have and why aren't we using it? Well, we know we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground and we've already learned about the forces trying to prevent that. Then there's misinformation campaigns. They are obviously another threat to renewable energy. There's one myth that relates to wind turbines killing birds. The way of the dodo. What's the concern around birds and wind farms? Well, some opponents claim the blades, which slice through the sky, are killing too many birds. Is there any truth to that? So one study estimates that up to 328,000 birds are killed by wind turbines each year in the United States. That is a lot of birds, more than I thought. Yeah, it is. But did you know that cars kill around 700 times more birds than turbines? But it's actually cats that are the biggest threat. I don't even know how to say this number, but I'll give it a go. Domestic and feral cats kill an estimated 1,850,700,000 birds annually in the US. All I'm learning here is that there is an insane number of dead birds. Does this mean we have to make a birds podcast? I think we should keep it to one podcast at a time. And on that note, I think it's time to chat to our guest. Susan Joy Hassel, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. So you're a climate change communicator. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role and what it is you exactly do? Because communicating climate change is obviously so important, not only when it comes to educating and informing people, but ultimately provoking a response. Yeah, absolutely. So about 30 years ago, climate change was really just coming on the scene as an, as an important issue. I was already working in the energy field, and it became clear to me that the biggest impact of our energy use was obviously going to be climate change, but also that climate change was going to be the most important, the defining issue of our time. And while I had lots of skills in communication, in synthesizing large amounts of complex information and communicating them in a clear, simple way, I wanted to apply those skills and those tools to the most important topic. And that's climate change. 
So I started working with scientists to help them to communicate more effectively, to get rid of the jargon, to, to communicate using stories, to talk about things that people care about when they talk about climate change. And I ended up writing the first three U.S. national climate assessments, writing an HBO documentary, doing all kinds of work around that. I also work a lot with journalists to help them get the latest science in a way that they can take it in and communicate it with their audiences. So my work in climate change communication goes from working with political leaders to journalists to scientists to the general public. How do you go about describing climate change, the effects of climate change, and what's at stake to to everyday people? Well, the first thing I do is find out who these people are and what they care about, right? Because it's not just about telling them, okay, we know there's like five things everybody should know about climate change. It's real. It's us. It's bad. Experts agree. And there's hope. But before I tell that story, I want to know what do people care about? Do they care about water? I can talk about climate change as a water issue. Do they care about energy? Are they people of faith? Do they have children or grandchildren that they're concerned about? Because then I can talk about climate change as it affects the things that they already care about. And I find that to be a really effective way in. You spoke about hope there. How much optimism do you have that we can solve the climate crisis? Hmm. Hope and optimism are a little different. I have a lot of hope, but it's it's constructive, grounded hope. And that's because we have everything we need. We have the technologies. We know what policies work. All we're lacking right now is the will, the political will to get it done. And you know, that's a renewable resource. The will comes from the people. And if we as people, as citizens, let our leaders know that this is what we want, that this is what we care about, we can get this job done. Now, when I say leaders, I don't just mean presidents. I mean leaders at every level in your local government, right? In cities, in towns, in counties, in states, all the way up to the national level, in business, in finance. Where do we do our banking? Do we let our banks know that we don't want them financing fossil fuels anymore? We want them financing the clean energy transition. So all of our leadership in business, in government, in civic organizations need to understand that this is the most important issue of our time and we've got to take it on. So I have hope that we can get the job done if people get in the streets, get in the courts, get everywhere they need to get and move this forward because we do know what to do. Look, it's a man-made problem and it has man-made solutions and we know what they are. And what are those solutions? What are the most substantive solutions to, to climate change, the solutions that really excite you? Yeah, so big picture, there are three things we're gonna have to do phase out fossil fuels, deploy clean energy, and protect our forests. Now, we can get into each of those a little bit. When I say phase out fossil fuels, we already know, I mean, the International Energy Agency, you know, very conservative body has said, there can be no new fossil fuel infrastructure if we hope to meet the internationally agreed upon goals of trying to limit warming to less than one and a half degrees Celsius. So what does that mean? No new exploration for oil or gas, no new wells, no new pipelines, none of that, no new gas-fired power plants. We've got to start phasing this stuff out. And the first step in phasing it out is no more new stuff. And yet 
we're on track to produce so much more, to to do so much more in the way of this new infrastructure. That's got to stop. Then we've got to figure out how to phase out everything we already have, all the gas and coal plants already online, all the fossil fuel-powered vehicles already on the roads. All of that is going to need to phase out in an orderly way. But the first thing you got to do is stop throwing good money after bad. Okay, so that's phasing out fossil fuels. Number two, deploying clean energy. We're deploying solar, we're deploying wind. We need to do it faster, much faster. And we need to deploy other kinds of clean, renewable energy, geothermal, tidal, wave. There is so much out there that's so exciting. There's so much innovation taking place in that space right now. We need to really be putting our energy into that. Some of the things that I find interesting and exciting, I just recently learned about these lightweight neighborhood electric vehicles. You know, we think only about, you know, we go from walking or bicycling to the car. And cars, especially in the U.S., are huge things. They're big, they're heavy, way bigger and heavier than they need to be. Every day I see people driving around in these huge SUVs, one little person driving around in this thing that's like a tank. These neighborhood electric vehicles are small, they're lightweight, and they do everything that most people need to do in their car during the day. And so, you know, for grocery shopping or running the kids to school, they're great. So I think that's a really cool solution. When I think about how we get our existing energy companies, the oil and gas companies and the coal companies to make the transition with us, I think, you know, the oil companies and the gas companies, they have lots of geology expertise. They should be working on geothermal energy. They also have lots of offshore oil expertise. They should be working on offshore wind. They can take their expertise, their workforce, and put it to use in the clean energy transition instead of expanding and continuing the dirty energy that's gotten us in this mess to begin with. So all of that excites me from a way, as a way forward. Yeah, and do you have any favorite win-win solutions, climate solutions that also benefit other parts of our lives in addition to lowering greenhouse gas emissions? Absolutely. One of the really wonderful things about most of the climate solutions is that they are win-win, or as my colleague Beth Beth Selwyn likes to say, this is multi-solving. We can solve lots of problems at the same time, right? Many of us you know, we don't get enough exercise. Our neighborhoods aren't as clean and walkable and vibrant and welcoming as we would like them to be. Well, if we get out of those big cars and do more walking and more bicycling and more of these lightweight electric vehicles, we can help our communities in so many other ways. Cleaner air, cleaner water. We send fewer kids to the hospital with asthma. They're quieter. One of the things that we all sort of hate is the noisiness of gas-powered lawnmowers and leaf blowers and all of that. And, you know, we switch to all electric outdoor tools and they're so quiet. It's just a beautiful, peaceful. So this is the kind of thing that are really win-win kinds of solutions. They also, the new McKinsey report that's just out on the net zero transition talks about how many jobs will be created? Yes, we're going to lose some jobs in the fossil fuel industry and in the dirty energy of the past, but we're going to gain many more jobs than we're going to lose. So this is going to be good for the economy. All kinds of new products, all kinds of so job growth, economic growth, technological development. There's so much that's positive that are 
co-benefits, if you will, multi-solving ways that win, win, win across the board. There is no reason to hang on to the dirty energy of the past. Even if it weren't for climate change, there are lots of other problems caused by the exploration and extraction and transportation of fossil fuels. Think about what's happening right now in Africa, where they're trying to build this huge new pipeline, the East African crude oil pipeline. It will cut through so many protected areas where there are indigenous people, where there are protected species, where there are important water resources. The same is going on in the Amazon. The same is going on in Canada. All of that are really bad impacts of fossil fuels that have nothing to do with climate change. So a real win if we stop the dirty energy is all of those other things will be better protected. Indigenous peoples, precious natural resources, the rainforests. So there's just so many benefits that we really ought to be taking advantage of. Yeah, in addition to to tackling climate change, so many of these solutions just seem to make so much sense. Susan, what do you say, though, to to critics who claim climate action is too expensive? (laughs) Well, if you think climate action is too expensive, try climate inaction. That's what's really expensive. We're spending trillions of dollars right now on the exacerbated weather events, these extreme weather events, the, the, the stronger, more rapidly intensifying hurricanes, the heavier downpours, torrential rains that are leading to flooding across the world, the heat waves that are killing people and destroying infrastructure, the droughts that are imperiling agriculture and imperiling the food supply of billions of people. I mean, (laughs) the costs of inaction are so enormous that there's no comparison. Yes, doing something about climate change is going to cost something, but it's gonna cost much more if we don't act. And we're paying the costs of inaction now, and they are only gonna get worse in the future. So there's no question and every, you know, every economic study that has looked at this has found very clearly that the costs of action are tiny compared to the costs of inaction. So that's what people need to understand. These costs of action, they're not really costs. They're really investments. They're investments that are going to pay us back and make our future so much healthier, so much better. It's going to be such a more beautiful world in every possible way. We're going to be healthier. We're going to have cleaner, more walkable communities. We're not going to be tearing up the rainforests. You know, protecting protecting the world as we were, as we came to it, is such an important value as it is. But also protecting a livable climate for human beings and for all the other species that we share this earth with. So, yeah, I I think it's very clear that, yes, it will cost something, but it will cost a lot more if we don't act. And, you know, I mean, there are there are estimates that, you know, we might have to invest. uh, What is it? Nine trillion dollars or something in infrastructure a year. But we already invest like five trillion. Right. So. It's mostly taking what we're already investing in infrastructure, investing it in a smarter way, right? 
bigger culverts, you know, because the rain is coming in heavier events. Everything that we do, we invest in energy infrastructure all the time, but let's stop investing in the energy infrastructure of the past and start investing in the energy infrastructure of the future. So part of this is just shifting money from where we currently spend it to where we need to spend it. And then those other expenditures are going to pay us back in dividends as we reduce the severity of extreme weather and some of these other things that we're spending so much on now. You've already touched on this. You've already spoken about the benefits, but let's say we do act, we do take decisive and bold action. What do you think the world will look like in 30 years from now? Mm, I think, well, we have to do this, right? If we don't do it, we're committing to a future that is catastrophic, untenable, a really a breakdown of civilization. But if we do all the right things, we're talking about a cleaner, healthier world powered by renewable energy with innovation and a healthy, vibrant economy. And, you know, we will be able to look back and say, we met the moment. We met the greatest challenge that faced our civilization. And we did it in a way that was good for everyone. We took care of those who are harmed by the transition. Look, there are people working in dirty energy. They're gonna need to be helped to make the transition, to be retrained so that they can work good, um, well-paying jobs that are healthier for them and healthier for the world. We don't wanna leave anyone behind in this transition. We also need to take care of the most vulnerable communities. There are a lot of people that are right now on the front lines of climate change, and they don't have the resources to adapt. We need to help those people because they contributed very little to this problem. They did not get the benefits of, you know, of the fossil fuel uh, economy, and yet they're suffering so many of the consequences of that fossil fuel economy. So we need to make sure that we're taking care of everybody along the way. So we'll have a more equitable um, kind of uh, society as well. And that's really important. So we will have solved multiple problems on the way to solving the climate problem. And that's a really beautiful thing. It will be a, a really better world all the way around. Yeah, and the, the point you just raised is a really important one, and it seems to be the, the cruel irony of climate change in that the countries, the people that contributed at the least are the ones who are suffering and will suffer the most and um, are at most risk. Just finally, this podcast is all about empowering people to talk about climate change, whether it be with family members, friends, colleagues, possibly even complete strangers. So as a professional climate change communicator, do you have any tips? Do you have any advice? Sure. One of the most important things that I could advise with regard to how to talk about it, and this may sound a little counterintuitive, is to listen. So often we come into a conversation knowing what we want to communicate and what we want to say, and we're going to tell somebody this story. We're going to tell them what they need to know. The first thing is to listen. Who are they? What do they care about? If you find out what they care about, then you can talk to them about climate change in a way that will matter to them, right? If they're really concerned about their children, you can talk about how this will create a better future for their children, right? If they're uh, you know, a, a person of faith and they care about taking care of God's creation or taking care of the least of these, 
you can talk to them about climate change from that perspective, how this is protecting God's creation, how this is taking care of the least of these, those who don't have the resources to deal with the problems that they're facing now because of climate change. So I think that that's the first step is to really listen, to understand, and then to establish trust and establish a dialogue and let let it be a conversation. Tell them about what you know and how much you care about it and why they should care about it. And then listen, what are their concerns? What are their doubts? And then respond to those. Because if you're responding to someone's questions, they're going to be listening to you much more closely than if you're just, you know, giving them your core dump about what you want them to know. So I feel that that's very important. It's, it's got to be a conversation rather than a lecture. Some wonderful advice there, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us on Hot and Here. It's been really fabulous speaking to you, chatting with you, and thank you so much for, for all the, uh, the vital work that you do in this space. It's my pleasure to talk to you. This is all I care about. This is all I want to do. I just want to say the most important thing there is to say in the most effective way there is to say it, and so we can get together and solve the most important issue of our time. Absolutely. Okay, James, that was my conversation with Susan Joy Hassel, who says we have everything we need when it comes to fighting climate change. We have the tech. All we are lacking is the will, the, the political will. That's, uh, that's comforting and good to know that we have everything. Um, it's kind of fitting that, you know, that's the point she ends on. We need the political will. Today in Australia, it was election day. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, the election's been decided. Australia is a land of... Many dangers posed by climate change for many voters. This, this election has been seen as, a, as an election on climate change. Do you think that's been reflected in the campaign and, and the issues that, that the major parties in Australia have prioritised? Uh, I don't think so. I think, you know, naturally you're going to assume that one side, one political party is, is one of the major political parties leans to a more progressive stance in, with climate, but you, neither have championed climate, neither have taken pride in, in their in their stance on climate. So it doesn't really feel like, yeah, it has been in the focus. Wages have been in the focus and price of living have been on the focus, both things affected by climate. Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of people cite climate change as um, the number one issue that will likely determine their vote. But even for people who don't, if cost of living is the most pressing issue they face in day-to-day life, climate change is still inevitably going to affect, affect that down the track. Well, climate has been weaponized as in Australia, particularly as climate versus jobs. Making climate action takes away jobs in Australia. We've we've managed to make that the conversation. It's not true. It will completely destroy jobs and ruin environments if we don't start addressing it immediately. Okay, James, we are five episodes into the series. What have you learned along the way? How do you feel now talking about climate change? Do you feel like you're more knowledgeable? I feel more comfortable and I feel more, uh, I feel I have more confidence talking about climate. And that's a massive thing when communicating anything. If you understand the principles behind it and you understand the urgency and you understand where that urgency comes from and you, you move past a point of fear and, you know, I'm not a scientist and you don't need to be a scientist to understand that we need political action now, we need things to change and 
you know, I one day, I'm a young man in, in his mid twenties. One day, I want to have a family, and it's late 20s, these kinds mate. of conversations I need to have. Oh uh, yeah, late twenties. Hey mate, I mean, you're younger than you, old dog. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and it's it's something that I have to that I'm conscious of, but I'm also much more inspired and much more motivated now to to you know grab it by the scruff of the neck. And, and possibly more frustrated than you were previously because you, you're sort of more acutely aware of the, the inaction? A hundred percent. And, you know, I'd say to, to, it's, point, it's, you know, it's important you ask that question today because I don't think um, that walking into an, a ballot box today, walking towards the ballot box today, climate was front of my mind. Thanks for listening to Hot in Here. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. The show is hosted by Jackson Williams and myself, James McManigan. Audio engineering and music is done by Callum Hicks. Make sure you tell your mates about the show and start chatting about climate change.